Can a TV show explore its guests' emotions? Should there be a limit, or should anyone who is subject to this type of programme bear the consequences? I'm asking this because in the 90s an episode of The Jenny Jones Show in the United States ended in a crime, and the public's response to who was really responsible still divides opinion. Today, you will hear about the crime committed by Jonathan Schmitz against his own friend Scott Amadour. Talk shows are TV programmes where people tell real stories. They sometimes participate in stage dynamics or reveal secrets that invite the viewer's attention. This type of programme has been part of the international TV schedule since the 90s. The dynamic of these reality shows are always the same. They entertain the public with participant revelations and on-screen audience reactions. The competition for this type of programme on the different television channels in the USA was so great that each had to stand out in some way. For some, they are considered entertainment. For others, they are demeaning and degrading. In 1995, The Jenny Jones Show announced that they were looking for someone who wanted to reveal on their programme that they had a crush on someone they knew, but they needed to be of the same sex as the participant. Scott Bernard Amadour was 32 years old at the time he saw the call and was excited to participate. He was an openly gay man. He made his homosexuality clear to his family when he was serving in the US military. His family and friends never had any problems with this. Scott had a crush on one of his brother's condo residents in Michigan, a 24-year-old named Jonathan Schmitz. They met through a mutual friend named Donna Riley. She also lived in this condominium, and one day Scott went there to visit his brother and Donna. Jonathan was fixing her car. Scott was kind of a handyman, electrician, plumber, mechanic, and when he learned that they had car trouble, he was ready to help Jonathan. From that day on, they were firm friends. Scott developed a crush on his friend. Some thought that Jonathan was also interested in Scott, but he was not gay. Scott never talked to him about it, but he saw in the programme an opportunity to open up. He applied to appear on the show and was selected. As a guest, he called Donna. The recording took place on March 6, 1995. No one could have imagined the tragedy that would unfold, and this episode never aired. Now, which of these ways would you choose to reveal your secret crush on someone? A, would you write that person a letter? B, would you tell the person in private in case he rejects you? Or C, would you tell that person that you're gay and you hope he is on national television? <laughs> Watch you now to meet Donna and Scott. Now, Donna has been helping Scott pursue his secret crush on John. John's backstage. He can't hear us. Um, how, how bad's the crush? Tell me about the first time you met him. Where, where, where was he? Uh, basically, well, he was under a car, working on her brake line. Yeah. And that was your first time? What was your first impression? Um, well, I only saw the lower half of him, so you can imagine. <laughs> um, you think, okay, you think about it, you, you have fantasies about him? I've had a couple, yeah. Yeah, you had one, you had, when he was under the car, you had a fantasy about him. Yeah, something to do with, like, brake oil, line snapping, and... Tell us about that fantasy. 
I got a pretty big hammock in my yard, and I just, yeah, I thought about it. tying them up to my hammock. Um, and? Well, it entails, like, whipped cream and champagne, stuff like that. Now, John, he, he knows you're gay, right? Yeah. Do, do you know that he is? No. Anything's possible. What is it that's so exciting about him to you? Um, he's got a cute little hard body. <laughs> um, you know, one you just want to pick up and put in your curio cabinet, you know, dust him off once in a while. You want, you want to physically pick him up? Oh, he's just a tiny little cute thing. He's gorgeous. <laughs> well, all right, let's see if he really is. Take get the headphones off of John and let's have John come out here oh, and right see now. who has the crush on him. Here's John. Did you think Donna had the crush on you? Did I? No, we're good friends. Well, guess we're... what? It's Scott that has the crush on you. You lied to me. <laughs> uh, before we talk, take a look at it. We'll show a little playback of what uh, Scott said about you, uh, John. Take a look at that oh, monitor right here. down there. Well, it entails like whipped cream and champagne, stuff like that. Scott was pretty open, but he's been fantasizing about you since he saw you under that car for the first time. He had an under-the-car fantasy, and he had a hammock fantasy he's been telling us about. Did you have any idea that he liked you this much? Um, no, 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 I did not. Can you tell us what your status is? Are you involved with anybody? Or? Um, no, but I am uh, definitely a heterosexual, I guess you could say. When the show ended, the three left together. They drank and went to the airport to catch the flight back home. In the parking lot, they found a broken warning light, and as John had an old car, they were joking among themselves that it was just a matter of fixing it and putting it in his car since one of the turn signals didn't work. Scott kept that lamp. When they landed, everyone went to Donna's house, and there they continued drinking and talking. Three days later... Scott left a provocative note on Jonathan's doorstep with that light bulb picked up at the Chicago airport. On the note was written something like, you have the special tool to fix this. During the night, Jonathan went to Scott's house, who at that moment received a visit from his friend Gary Brand. As soon as Scott opened the door, Jonathan launched into a rant. Gary went to the door to see who it was and heard Jonathan say, I left the car switched on. I'll turn it off and I will be right back. Scott stood at the door waiting. Jonathan got into the car and when he got out, he was holding a shotgun. Immediately, Scott closed the door, grabbed a chair and propped it up against the door, but he was too late. Jonathan broke down the door and shot Scott twice. After the crime, Jonathan got into the car and drove away. He stopped at the first gas station and called the police from a payphone. That same night, he went to the police, handed over the gun and turned himself in. The investigation focused exclusively on the events leading up until that day. Jonathan took responsibility for the crime. It was now up to his lawyers to defend his side to try to get him the shortest sentence possible. In 1996, at the hearings, they claimed that the programme's format was both outrageous and immoral. Jonathan had been invited onto the show to be manipulated. Once there, he was used, bullied and tormented, which left him incensed. 
Having been provoked, he acted in the fury of the moment. Jonathan had no criminal tendencies. After committing the crime, he called the police and turned himself. He had lost control of the situation, but afterwards came to his senses. Jonathan's psychiatrist took the witness stand. The doctor reported that Jonathan had had an abusive upbringing by his father, leading to an affective disorder with recurring bouts of depression. He had once taken an overdose of medication in an attempt to take his own life. His disorders affected his mental health. His father, Alan Schmitz, was called to the stand. He spoke about his relationship with his son since he was a child. He said, for example, once he caught him playing in the street, skipping class, and his attitude was to take his belt off his pants and beat Jonathan until he got to school. He also said days after the meeting at the TV show recording, Jonathan called him. The next time you heard from John was that night, Monday night, during this ice storm? Yes. And I said, oh, well, what, what happened with the show? I said, you know, who was the uh, admirer? And he didn't answer. And he started to weep. And he said, uh, Dad, uh, that thing didn't work out very well in Chicago for me. But he said it was a guy. And I was very angry. Alan was also asked about the fact that Jonathan had been concerned that people would think he was gay, which led him to kill Scott. When you had conversations with your son, did he express any statements to you about people thinking he was gay or people going to think that he was gay if they saw the show? Yes, he said, right. now, Gramp and Gram and everybody's going to think I'm gay. And your son was concerned about that, is that right? Yes. I mean, how would you feel if your father thought that maybe you were homosexual? You provided a tape summarizing your thoughts on this particular case, is that correct? Yes. I want to ask you a question, Mr. Schmitz, about one particular statement you made in that tape, and it's the following. Fathers thought the reason that he had to kill Scott Amateur is to prove that he was not homosexual. Remember saying that on the tape? I remember it was speculative thought. The defense also claimed that after the recording, instead of Scott giving John space to process everything, he provoked him. By delivering the note, he undermined the emotional state of a person who had a delicate psychiatric condition. They tried to reduce the charge of first-degree murder, a premeditated crime, to second-degree murder, where there is no intention to kill. In November 7, 1996, at the closing arguments, lawyers gave their speeches. What happened on the Jenny Jones show might not have been nice. And as you know, Jenny Jones is going to have to answer for that in a separate case in this courthouse. But keep this in mind. No matter what the Jenny Jones show did, what the defendant did was 100 times worse. A person cannot kill another person for words that that person spoke. A person cannot kill another person because of embarrassment or humiliation. Prosecutor suggests to you that John was embarrassed, yes, humiliated, yes, from the Jenny Jones show, finding of the note, went out, they killed Scott. But that's not what the evidence shows. I mean, is there some question in anybody's mind that John Schmitz was suffering from mental illness on March 9, 1995? Prosecution suggests that we're trying to blame Scott Amador for his own death. Nothing could be further from the truth. 
One week later, in November 12th, the verdict was read. Our verdict um, as to the charge of first-degree premeditated murder is guilty of the lesser offense of second-degree murder. Second count, possession of a firearm during the commission of a first-degree premeditated murder, also guilty. I've considered everything that has been said by everybody. I have considered the law. I feel it appropriate, though difficult for me to do, that your sentence be a minimum of 25 years in state prison, maximum not more than 50 years. The criminal case ended and Scott's family filed a civil case against the TV show. They believed that none of this would have happened if it weren't for the existence of this type of reality show. The programme directly or indirectly convinced Scott and Jonathan to participate in it. Everyone already knew about Jonathan's responsibility for carrying out the crime, but the idea now was to prove the programme producer's negligence. In a testimonial to viewers, Jenny Jones said this, As much as we all regret what happened, the fact is that this tragedy is about the actions of one individual. Scott's family hired the prominent lawyer, Jeffrey Feger. He was very good at his job, but at the same time, he loved publicity. He knew the Jenny Jones case would be a big step for his career. In 1999, the producers were asked if they had intended to sensationalise the issues leading up to the show. They all denied it. The Jenny Jones show put people in a situation few would want to be in, but many would want to see. The arguments of the lawyer for the Scott family can be summarised as his intention to show the court that the programme intended to sensationalise this story in order to obtain high ratings. Increased audiences brought increased revenue. But in this instance, a person lost his life. The lawyer noted that the very TV station that was being sued was the same one that covering the trial for national broadcast, and of course, they were not doing it for free. Donna was called again to testify at one of these hearings and confirmed everything that happened after the recording of the programme. She added that the intention of the note was not to provoke in a pejorative way, but rather it was just one of the jokes they used to play on each other. At that trial, Jonathan's sexuality was called into question. The show's producers and several of his friends said that he had kissed and slept with Scott after a night of drinking in the apartment. But Donna, when questioned about this, said that she had not seen anything like that happen in the apartment, and Scott he had never told her about it. It was clear that Jonathan's parents' teachings had encouraged homophobia, but the intention was not to judge him. That was already a settled matter. The focus was to try to prove that there was no justification or reason for him to have done what he did. Whether he was gay or not, whether the family was going to know whether he was gay or not, was an issue he was having to deal with was the catalyst. The most anticipated day was the day the presenter Jenny Jones took the stand. She clearly appeared to be prepared to answer the questions, but she did not expect the strong impact of Jeffrey's questions. You understand that... You won't have a show unless there is somebody who gets humiliated or embarrassed, don't you? Yes or no? Absolutely not. And you also understand that the reason that you asked Scott Amador to tell a sexual fantasy and the reason that you played it in front of John was you wanted a reaction. 
didn't you? You didn't know what his emotions would be. You didn't know if he'd be happy, right? Right? Right. Or you didn't know if he'd be sad, did you? No, that's why I asked him. You didn't know if he would be hurt inside, did you? No. So you used him, not knowing what would happen to him. You used him as a source of entertainment, having no idea what his emotions would be for other people, didn't you? No, that's not the way I see it. I don't use people on the show. Do you know that you're smiling? I believe I'm smiling, yes. So are you. You're not nervous, though, are you? I'm not comfortable. Right, and you smile when you're not comfortable, don't you? Sometimes. That's what Jonathan Schmitz did, isn't it? Not necessarily. How do you know? Since you smile when you're nervous, mm -hmm. do you believe that you have the ability to look into Jonathan Schmidt's mind and know that when he's smiling, when he comes on your show, he's not nervous? I assume that all of our guests excuse, are nervous. Excuse me. Answer my question. I didn't ask you whether you assumed all your guests were nervous or not. I'm saying, do you have the ability to look into Jonathan Schmitz's mind? Listen to my question, please, okay. and answer the question that I'm asking, not the one you want to answer, okay? Do you believe you have the ability to look into Jonathan Schmitz's mind and tell whether or not he's nervous? Yes or no? No, I can't. Do you have the ability to look into Jonathan Schmidt's mind and see whether or not he is embarrassed? Yes or no? No. Do you have the ability to look into Jonathan Schmidt's mind and see whether or not he was humiliated? I don't think he was humiliated. Excuse me. Did I ask you whether you thought he was humiliated? By the way, you're also aware well in advance of this show that other people had warned you that you are exploiting sick people for, for the purient entertainment of others. You were aware of that, weren't you? When? Yes or no? I'm not sure when you're talking Before about. the murder. All talk shows were under fire during that time. We, no. we were all getting attacked. With regard to that criticism, you're aware was leveled at you and your show. Even though you were aware of that criticism, your response was simply to deny it isn't it? I'm not sure what you're talking about. I'm sorry. You lie to people. You deceive people. You humiliate them. You embarrass them. You turn them loose. You've been warned about it repeatedly. And you say, I couldn't possibly have seen that this was coming. She denied everything. However, it was not the answers that mattered, but the questions which remained in the minds of the jurors. At the end, Jeffrey Fieger made his closing argument. This kind of opportunity comes around but once, and perhaps never again. You have an opportunity to render real justice, to make a difference, to move the monolith just a little, and to say, Warner Brothers, on this time and in this place, you were wrong. You hurt somebody. You hurt many people. And under the law of this state, we have now decided to mete out justice. The final decision was almost unanimous. Eight out nine voted in favor of Scott's family, and the broadcaster was ordered to pay $25 million. The appeal process ran for three years, and finally, in a score of two against one, the court voted in favor of Warner Brothers. They claimed that there was no legal obligation on the show with regard to Jonathan's actions.
The Jenny Jones Show programme stayed on the air until 2003. Jonathan was released in 2017 after serving 22 years of his sentence. The family never received any compensation from Warner Brothers. This case highlights the psychological consequences of those who participate on this type of show. It is clear that Jonathan was also a victim of this circus. Criminal cases are not like movies. They do not have a neat and tidy ending. In real life, the matter is never closed, at least for one of the parties. No one can kill a human being for the words they say. Embarrassment is no reason for murder. But was Jonathan the only one responsible for the crime he committed? Or are the people who put him in this situation also to blame? Leave your opinion in the comments. See you in the next case.